Nobody tells you that nobody really cares about your dream, not your mother or your wife or your children. They don't care if your dream doesn't come true. What they care about is you and also the garbage and when you're willing to take it out. You alone have to care hard. A dream is a baby that will die if you let it. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. This episode is the first in a summer series I'm calling Sad Stories Told for Laughs. In this series, I'll be talking with writers and performers about their public humiliations, the book signings that nobody showed up for, the shady concert promoters, the hostile audiences, the bad reviews, all for your entertainment and edification, dear listener. The first guest on Sad Stories Told for Laughs is memoirist Harrison Scott Key. His first memoir, The World's Largest Man, is one of the funniest books you're ever going to read. His second memoir, Congratulations, Who Are You Again?, also hilarious, tells how the first memoir came to be and what happened next. Harrison seemed an obvious choice for sad stories told for laughs. Harrison Scott Key, I sure do appreciate you being on the Habit Podcast and and agreeing to be the inaugural guest for my summer series called Sad Stories Told for Laughs. Well, I got lots of sad stories and the world seems to want nothing to to do with them but laugh at them. So I feel like this was made for me, man. Excellent. Well, the the title of your 2018 writer's memoir kind of summarizes the spirit of this whole endeavor. Congratulations. Who are you again? Um, Yeah. (laughs) Because we, we have it in our minds that somehow we get published or get a record deal or, or get an exhibition or whatever, that somehow we will no longer be obscure and that we will enjoy the esteem of everyone around us. But as, as your title says, who are you again is, is more of the, uh, the more likely outcome of. <laughs> it's the saddest title I could think of. <laughs> um, I think your release day, I, it, in my experience, is the loneliest day of a writer's career. They say that it's good to have a friend nearby, um, just to call in case you're you're feeling anxious. Uh, yeah. Want to take a lot of pills. Um, <laughs> I had. Uh, I remember I woke up on on my pub day, and uh, I thought my wife would at least get me balloons or something, you know. <laughs> and uh, there were, all my kids were like what's wrong, dad? I'm like, my dream came true. It's, it's fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> Nobody cares. It's fine. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Um, I, I try to write, you know, when writer friends release a book, I try to send them a note or something that said, Hey, just, you know, just so you know, this is, it's not unusual for this to be a lonely day. Um, because again, uh, you might be a little less obscure that day than usual, but probably just a little less obscure. Yeah, it's good to have an activity on pub day. <laughs> something to keep you occupied. You know, go plant some flowers or something because the calls will not be coming in. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um. Well, one of your uh, one of your lines that you, you must be pretty proud of because it's on the back of the book and it's in the first chapter or two and then it's in the at the end of the book, and that is. Uh, the a dream is also a monster that wants to eat you, mm. and that becomes kind of a um, organizational principle for uh, for your memoir. Tell me yeah. about that. Well, 
Um, you know, you think about dragons and monsters and beasts and things coming at you from the chaos. Um, but what, in my experience, any sort of grand creative dream, uh, you kind of become the thing that births the dragon. You become mm-hmm. the chaos from which the dragon emerges to then eat you. And uh, a, a dream, if, if you're lucky enough for your dream to come true, um, then you better armor yourself and sharpen your sword because the dream will uh, try to consume everything in your life. It does, there's no middle ground. Like you work so hard and finally the thing gets out there in the world. And as soon as it gets out there, I'm sure there's a, some, you know, Mesopotamian myth about it or something at some point. Cause as soon as the dream gets out into the world, it turns around and wants to, it wants to destroy you. It wants to take over every, everything that you became to manifest it. It wants to destroy all of that. Huh. It's a, it's a, it's wicked, man. And that's why famous people go crazy. That's why celebrities uh, do drugs and, you know, all these mug shots and things of, you know, celebrities busted for drunk driving and all that. Like, I mean, not that you can also be completely obscure and uh, unsuccessful and get busted for drunk driving, as we know, as my, my brother knows. Um, <laughs> but, um, that's what happens is that it, uh, because that's, you know, um, I don't, I'm sure there's a Bible verse that's uh, applicable to this. It's not in the book of Revelations, but it just seems that it just seems that the thing that you most want when it finally happens, you can't possibly have known what it would be because if you had, would you still have done it? And the answer is probably frighteningly yes. (laughs) Um, But you're like, you, you have a new job. Once that dream gets out in the world, you have a new job. And the job is, the first half of the job was, how do you become extraordinary, right? How do you yeah. finally write a book, finally make a movie, finally release an album and, you know, play on David Letterman or, you know, whatever shows exist now. And how do you become extraordinary? And as soon as the dream is real, the question becomes, how can you become ordinary? Huh. And you stay human and not so extraordinary that you destroy all your relationships and, and lose your personality. Huh. You know, the, the desire for fame seems to me is a, a desire to be loved by people that you can't love back. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really deep. <laughs> and that uh, that can't end well, you know. No, it, yeah. Fame. So fame at its best is a it's just a marker of something, right? It's a marker that the that the the bomb landed. It landed and it exploded and it detonated the target. The fame becomes this marker. So if you're just pursuing the fame, um then in some sense, uh, you never quite get there. Like you have to remember that it's just a marker. It's just a symbol of this other thing Mm -hmm. that your work is out there in the world. And I have tried to remember that. So now, you know, when I was wanting the markers of the fame, you know, when I was wanting to get on the times bestseller list or to be on fresh air or to be on this American life or to be on the today show. I mean, I remember a time when they had authors of novels on the today show. Like (laughs) I don't even know if they do that anymore. 
um, you know, you're so badly wanting that and then realizing like, even now, you know, my first book came out six years ago. My second book came out three years ago. Um, I I'll get, you know, messages on social media every day and they're not public, they're DMs. And it's somebody's talking about how this book like hit them at a pivotal point in their life. And, um, and I'm like, Oh, I wanted fame, but that's actually the real thing that you want is the yeah. person who's telling you that the book changed them. Because if, if that happens to one person, then the project, uh, was worthwhile. That happens with one person. One person finds it and experiences something similar to what you experienced uh, as you created it. Then it's it's worthwhile. But the fame becomes this thing that you you think you want exponential, you know, multiplied experiences like that. Um, but it just brings with it so much more people you can't love back. Is that what you said? Fame yeah, is desire to be loved by people the people that you can't love back. Mm. Maybe can I add an addendum to that? maybe it's a desire to confuse your creation with the thing that is, uh, to confuse yourself with the thing that is loved. Huh? You know, there's something about you create a thing that's been separate from you, you know, like this is my second book and it's separate from me. It's obviously emanates from me. Um, and so when people love that, uh, that's great. That means they buy it and tell their friends about it, but I'm, I'm not that I'm this other thing. I'm connected to it. And so to confuse, so that's, that's what helps with your reviews, right? You read bad reviews, you feel like they're criticisms of you. They're not. They're, that's commentary on this other thing that you made and, that, and other people's negative reviews of what, you, what you've created, uh, honestly, is just a reflection of their own pathologies and how their parents didn't love them enough, and every writer knows that. Um, but it's a confusion of the, the creator with the creation in some, in some, in some sense. Yeah. How many bad reviews did you read before you understood that or that you got that sense of separation enough to to have, find that less painful? Hmm. I don't know. I couldn't. If I counted them up, it'd be too many. I, I think it was when you it was probably a long, long process and, and maybe probably a year after my book came out. I mean, cause I, I got, I got a lot of reviews on Goodreads and Amazon and, mm-hmm. and uh, every review that was published, like an, a, an actual review of, you yeah. know, offered by a reviewer. Um, those were all uh, positive because most people don't waste times to review, you know, you know right. review books they don't like. Um, it definitely took a while. You have to get to the absurd with it. You have to, at some point you have to realize you are not reading the private thoughts of what people think of you. Yeah. You are reading the public thoughts of what people think of a, a thing that's not you. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but, you know, writers love to brag and talk about how they don't read reviews. Those people are liars. They're all lying. Everybody reads the reviews and it's so, it's so great. And reading a bad one at this point, reading a bad review is kind of exhilarating. Yeah. Um, Cause it's like, man, at least they finished it. At least they finished the book. <laughs> at least they cared enough to publish this. This that gives me hope in society and civilization that they yeah. cared enough to tell somebody they hated something. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I uh, uh, had I wrote a biography, a short little biography of uh, Saint Patrick um, years ago, and there were th- this was such a gift. There were I got two one star reviews, and one gave me one star because I was. Um, 
obviously um, anti-Catholic and didn't understand anything about the Catholic Church. And the one next to it gave me a one-star review because I was obviously a lapdog of the Pope. <laughs> obviously. And I was like, okay, that those are so uh, diametrically opposed that I'm, I, I can get some separation from this. Like, yeah, once you realize, like, you know, you get stuck at the office um, talking to the, the crazy person who works at the office and the person who um, everybody's out to get her and the <laughs> world and God and fate are all out to destroy her life. Yeah. When you realize that that's really the kind of person who writes one star reviews, it's that kind of person then yeah. you can be entertained by them. I mean, I remember one of my favorite bad reviews was uh, um, it said something like, uh, read this book. If you want to know how not to do a family, <laughs> I was like, that's, that's why I wrote it. Like nobody <laughs> writes a memoir who has the happy family. Like I wrote, somebody said that my dad should be in jail. Uh, and it was like a one star review. I was like, my dad didn't write the book. <laughs> like give me five stars. I survived. But whatever. I just want to hug these people. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's maybe the, maybe the last chapter of congratulations. Who are you again? Uh, you have a list of sort of things that people ought to know that nobody tells you when you publish a book. Would you mind reading some of that? Yeah, I'd love to. All right. Nobody tells you that nobody really cares about your dream, not your mother or your wife or your children. They don't care if your dream doesn't come true. What they care about is you and also the garbage and when you're going to take it out. Your friends might ask, hey, friend, how's that dream going? But nobody's going to be upset if the dream dies. And mostly they will not ask because they will already know. You alone have to care hard. A dream is a baby and it will die if you let it. But if you nurse it up and make it real, even then nobody really cares. And even if they do, their love for what you've made blooms and dies like a roadside daisy. Their love does not endure. It is not eternally begotten. It's not their place to care. That's your job. Oh, they talk. The neighbors and bloggers and people who ask for a photo with you, they talk as if your book is so good that it should be given to new parents at birthing centers and attached to tiny baby parachutes and dropped behind enemy lines. They speak like this and you believe them. Thank them, but do not believe them. Nobody tells you that on any given day, when you are to appear at a bookstore or a book festival, a surprising number of all your friends in that town will message you that regrettably they are unable to attend because a family emergency requires their attention. Many of them have to leave town for a funeral, they will say. Everywhere you go, people die. You will be honored to read one of your stories at the War Memorial Auditorium, original home of the Grand Ole Opry. More than 2,000 seats waiting to be filled. You will walk out on stage thinking of all the legendary acts that have stirred this room with their gifts, and you will see that only 20 people have come. And you will try to laugh and try not to cry. Nobody tells you that so much of dreaming is filling imaginary rooms with imaginary people. Nobody tells you that you will perform in state houses, sanctuaries, synagogues, city council chambers, train depots. These are all real, by the way. Train <laughs> depots, school auditoriums, county fairs, casinos, in the ballroom of the Hotel Monteleone and on the grounds of a derelict French castle. And even at the annual meeting of the Georgia OBGYN Society, Long horrific displays on transvaginal mesh and fetal scalp electrode placement. Why have they asked you to speak again? Is this a joke? Nobody tells you that sometimes your dream will feel like a joke. Nobody tells you that you will change. 
will cease reading reviews that one day you'll be able to go hours without checking your Amazon ranking. You will find yourself in the park staring into the trees. I had a publicist once, you will say to the squirrels. His name was Philip. Nobody tells you that whatever your ambition compels you toward to make books, buildings, clothes, advertisements, machines, life insurance policies, robots, who keep making sequels of lesser and lesser quality, whatever it is, the journey to greatness makes fools of us all. And I'll stop there. <laughs> uh, that's great. Yeah, one of, one of my, uh, one of the sort of um, rubrics for sad stories told for laughs is um, unusual venues. Um, oh, yeah. And um, and so I, I liked your list of unusual venues there. Uh, how was it that you ended up at the uh, OBGYN conference? The medical science is unable to determine the answer to that question. <laughs> um, I think what happened, and this this often happens, I think they needed some uh, something not about transvaginal mesh. I think they they every conference always needs some sort of speaker who's just out there in left field. Sometimes uh, I they need somebody to clear the air. Um, uh, I think on in this event, a lot of the the spouses came to it mm -hmm. um, because this was like something for the spouses who didn't play golf. This was down in sea Island, Georgia. So, uh -huh. you know, one of the great playgrounds of, of the East coast. Um, and it's just so funny. Uh, that, and I like walked through the whole, all the lobby where they had all the, the tables set up. Uh, and I, when I told people I had a badge that said I was a speaker. So of course every pharmaceutical rep at the conference was introducing themselves to me. And I was like, I'll take whatever samples you have. I, I can't, I can't give you any business. I'm sorry. Um, tell me about your, uh, your desire to uh, be on Terry Gross and how that dream got crushed. Well, so, you know, books are always, books are, you know, fighting for attention, especially with, um, streaming services and the way, you know, people spend most of their time, their entertainment dollars spent on films and TV shows. And those are, those are things that are fun to watch and, and relatively easy to consume. And um, so books are really, books really struggle with getting attention. And, um, you know, one of the ways there, there are a handful of ways you can get attention. Um, the, the best way to get attention is for a celebrity to, Instagram a picture of themselves with your book. I mean, that's as crazy as that is that and that's not a, that's not a dig against the industry. Um, there are so many books to choose from and so few sort of ways to tell. I mean, that's what the New York times bestseller list does is that it kind of tells people, Hey, pay attention to these books. So you're looking for some way to get your books to the right people. And, you know, during the process of, of, learning to write and becoming a writer and writing that first book, uh, I listened to a lot of fresh air with Terry gross mm -hmm. and also the New York times book review podcast and a few others. This was back in like Oh seven, Oh eight, Oh nine. Um, and, uh, really just trying to, I was relatively isolated living in Savannah, Georgia. Savannah is a great creative town, but it's very small mm -hmm. and there are only a handful of other writers and authors here. And so listening to those podcasts was a way to sort of feel like I was in the world of writers and um, writers would talk about their books and how they got uh, successful and how they wrote them and what it was like. And so I, you know, Terry Gross was sort of my lifeline. And so she sort of became 
the uh, the idol of my age. Of she became this person. I'm like, well, if I can get on her show, then my because every book, every author she would interview, every now and then, you know, she'll interview a film director or something like that. But she interviewed a lot of authors, and she treated her authors treats. I haven't listened to her in a while because she's dead to me, but um, <laughs> she treated authors with the same respect that she treated like real celebrities that everybody yeah. knew. And I loved that. It didn't, not that I'm, you know, vain and, and want to be treated like a celebrity, but I love that she, she didn't say, well, now that, you know, Tommy Lee Jones isn't here, I guess we'll have a writer on. There's more, <laughs> she, she really ele- elevated books and you could tell that she had a great research team that she would read the books and that she, I mean, really, you know, there are some people who ask questions and you're one of these people, you know, you get interviewed by a lot of folks and you can tell when somebody's read the work and it's a lot of work to read a book. It takes time. You have to read it. You, you can't do other things. You can't go through the ball with your dog while you're reading a book. And so I felt like this woman understood books. She tried to understand authors. And so she became my sort of benchmark. If I could get on this show, people would find my book. Because every author she interviewed, I went and found their book and I read most of them. So I thought, well, other people are going to be like me if they hear me on her show. And I got this close, Jonathan. I got that close. I I got an offer. Um, I got a pre-interview, you know, mm-hmm. of where they a producer calls me. And, um, I want, this is, I talk about this in my second book. It was, it was not great because this was in 2015. And so the black lives matter movement had just really begun and people were trying to take down the, the, uh, Confederate battle flag from the South Carolina state house. And my book came out about a month before that. And so my book, my first book was obviously a lot about rednecks and the white experience and the South and sort of what's good and terrible about the South and how I sort of escaped that, but also sort of rediscovered the beauty of parts of that. So it was relevant a little bit to what was happening in the world, but only tangentially. But that week that the producer called me to interview me about being on the show, that's all anybody in America was talking about. Should they take this flag down from the South Carolina State House? And I mean, um, Todd and Hesley Coates, his memoir had mm-hmm. just come out and everybody was, you know, reading that. And President Obama was, you know, tweeting about that and whatnot. And so it's the, her first question, like, so she wasn't it was the guy, actually, the, the producer was not in the mood to laugh. When people have read my book, they come in ready to laugh and they have, they are laughing before the interview even starts. And that's so good. And everything gets lubed up and fun. And this interviewer, this producer goes, their, their first question was, uh, what's your position on the Confederate battle flag? And I was like, Oh, this is going to not go well at all. Like, even <laughs> if I told them everything they wanted to hear it, and which I, I mean, I talked about, you know, what was wrong with the flag and why it was, but it wasn't funny. Like it was all serious. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I knew immediately this, these people would not have me on because this was a serious topic that they wanted to come at from a serious angle. And so somebody funny like me, even though that I, I feel like I probably exposed more of what's uh, pathological about the South than any NPR news report ever could. Yeah. Um, they couldn't hand, they couldn't handle the truth I was bringing. So it never, it just never happened. It was the saddest day of my life. Are you, are you saying that they, it, it just happened to fall that way or were they looking for some, some white Southerner to ask questions? To? I think, I think they were looking for a, 
a book that might shed some light on one angle of that story. And because my book had just come out and it was uh-huh. about the South and the sort of, you know, uh, experience of a, you know, young redneck sort of wrestling with, I talk about the Confederate flag in the book. Uh-huh. So it seemed like, well, maybe this is the, maybe this is a way to do it. I think a book like Hillbilly Elegy, which is, uh, uh, has uh, as much of a sense of humor as my dad's mom did, which is, was zero. Right. Um, that's more of what the, that what they wanted, and that book right. came out. I think you know a few months later, and that that book took off because that yeah. that book, Hillbilly Elegy, you know, really had this sort of perspective of what it was like, like sort of the rural white experience, and personified it, and humanized it in a way that was palatable um, and uh, frankly boring. I'm, I'm sorry if the author's listening, but that's a great book. And they ain't made a movie of mine yet. They should. I've written a screenplay. If anybody's listening, you can find <laughs> me on social media. Um, but when you write humor, um, people don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to talk about it. And especially people who aren't from the South. I mean, I got so many calls from NPR producers and journalists and interviews where they're like, you know, did this really happen? Like, can you talk about this? Some of this seems made up. Whereas when I would be interviewed by people like you or, you know, people from New Orleans or places like Houston or, or Savannah, you know, people from Florida, they were always say things like, uh, they didn't ask if it happened. They, they lived it. Their first question was, I think we may be related, which wasn't even a question. And so anytime I did talks up North, uh, above the Mason Dixon or did interviews with people who were up North. I always had to deal with people who disbelieved, uh, what I had written about, um, and fearful of it because it was, uh, those, these terrible, you know, rednecks and crackers down South. You can't write funny about that. That's, this is serious stuff that's ruining our country or that is contaminated, you know, the constitution or something. And so, uh, it was just not a good year for national coverage for my book. Maybe it will be one day, but it, it was rough. Uh, huh. There's so much that's out of your control uh, when you, Oh yeah. I mean, actually I, I'm going to phrase that. There's so little that is in your control besides writing a good book. That's so right. And you have to trust that, you know, it'll get to the right people. And, um, and, and it has, and one of the things, you know, uh, a buddy of mine, Eric, who's the sales rep for Harper Collins in my part of the country, He's a a great sales rep, but he reminded me because when I was sharing with him, I'm like, you know, nobody wants to talk about this really funny book about white people in the South (laughs) right now because uh, of what's happening um, in the world. And I totally got that. And I didn't blame God or anybody else for that. And he just reminded me that that a great work of art uh, is evergreen and will be around for a long time. And he said, your book, his work his his, what he said was, he said, your book will be, in our back catalog for a long, long time and people will keep ordering it because it will never go out of style. So like, you know, what the, the, these things are happening in the world and they started in 2015 really in a big way and, and really continued on through 2020 and even now to our present moment are really important things for the country. So I, I mean, I'm not going to hold any grudge against the nation for dealing with our past sins. Um, I did have, I adapted the screen, a screen, the first book into a screenplay and uh, when Netflix read it, they said there was there were too many white people in it. Um, uh, when in fact, at half of the characters are black, um, yeah. so it was, so it was against them for assuming all these people were white. 
Uh, and then Disney Plus said there was too much violence in it, um, which tells me that all those people have a really great education yeah. um, uh, because the violence in it was so much less than it was in real life. Yeah. Um, so anyway, those were, those were, that was great feedback to get. At least they were reading the screenplay, though. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I, when I went off to college, I was like, well, where are all the fist fights? <laughs> we had a... I started to say we had a daily fest, but there was kind of like a, a morning show and an, and an afternoon show. Usually, usually there was one in the morning and one in the afternoon at, at my school. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't do it in the middle of the day. Everybody's too tired to do it. But <laughs> you have some early, early, early morning stuff, and then uh, I'll see you in the parking lot. Um, yeah, I'll meet you in the parking lot. Meet you at the field house. Yeah, at Warner Robins yeah. Junior High, we had the slab. It's called the slab, and it was just oh. a, a place where a house was supposed to be built and it didn't get built, and it's as I remember, it was kind of stubbed out with plumbing and it was just across the, the little ditch from school. And you, you know, that if people would say, meet me at the slab that just echoed, you know? Oh, that's a, that's a great title for a poem or a novel a slab <laughs> <laughs> slab. That's so awesome. Um, well, I'm, I, uh, I'm glad to hear there's a screenplay of uh, the world's largest man. I'm sorry to hear that, you know, you're having a hard time attracting attention. Uh, who uh, who's going to play your dad in this movie in your mind? Well, so I'm working with a producer on it and um, uh, there have been, we've talked about a lot of different people. Uh, Nick Offerman was one um, we <laughs> talked about. Uh, Woody Harrelson would be great. And then yeah. We talked about him playing my dad um, because he's uh, the key with playing my father is that you have to be um, really frightening and like also really funny. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard that's a hard mix in an actor, but I feel like I feel like uh, Woody Harrelson really captures both of those huh. feelings. I was picturing a version of uh, John Goodman. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. John Goodman wasn't uh, as old as he is. Right. The film takes place in the eighties. Um, yeah. My dad was in his late thirties, um, yeah. but yeah, I, a very John Goodman character, uh, a big guy um, yeah. who. Uh, Funny and a little menacing. Yeah, funny and menacing. That was that was pop, man. Yeah, yeah. for sure. All right. Well, Harrison, we better wrap it up here. Um, thank you for getting uh, sad stories told for laughs off to a sad and funny beginning. Can I can I read? I appreciate that. I want to read one. I want to read the the epigraph to the first chapter. It's very short. I, would love um, it. I, would I love feel it. like this really encapsulates sort of um, the series that you are uh, putting together here, which is a great idea. Um, I came across this. I don't remember where. And I'm not, this is a 19th century immigrant lament. Is how I have attributed this. I came to America because I heard the streets were paved with gold. When I got here, I learned three things. One, the streets were not paved with gold. Two, they were not paved at all. And three, it was going to be my job to pave them. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Nothing summarizes the human experience or the creative life like that. So I wanted to end with that. Oh, that's great. Well, well, thank you. And I, and I appreciate your reminder that we can't expect other people to care about this work. It's our job to care about it. It so. is. And you know what? Um, as hard as it is and as, as difficult and as uh, sort of disillusioned as you can get when you do something great, um, I, 
I, I would change nothing and I'm living my best life. I'm, I'm the luckiest man in the world that I get to write these things. And I, I make light and make tell funny stories and make fun of myself. But when I get to sign books for people or I get a message from somebody who was, who uh, really felt something strong when they read one of my books or I get to talk to you, uh, man, I, this is, this is everything I've ever dreamed of being. And I feel like all of my ancestors, my father and grandfather and great grandfather, they didn't have something like this and to live in a country and in a time where I get to do something like this, as much as we make fun of it, um, life is pretty dang good. And I'm a, I'm a very blessed and lucky man. And thank you for asking to talk to me. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by the rabbit room where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com.